If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Maybe we could start with Rousseau, because Rousseau plays a big part in, in the Age of Anger. And you were clearly, when you wrote that book, very struck by what this Swiss French writer from a long time ago has to tell us about 21st century politics and particularly the anger of it. Do you still feel that? I mean, what does Rousseau, does Rousseau still speak to you in that way? Oh, yes, he does. Actually, it's funny, you know, when we're thinking about the format for this conversation and uh, you brought up the question of the the non-Western canon or the question of including the experience of Asian and African societies into, you know, this larger history of ideas. And I was reminded that I actually encountered uh, Rousseau for the first time, well, not for the first time, but I began to understand his importance as a thinker when uh, trying to understand events in Iran in the 1950s and 60s, where there was a massive intellectual archive created by obviously you know, people educated in the West or educated in Western style institutions who were very inspired by Rousseau and who aimed their critique at the technocratic elite then running Iran. Uh, often Ivy League educated uh, people who were seen uh, by these intellectuals as disconnected from uh, ordinary Iranians, uh, people pursuing an agenda of modernization that empowered them greatly and uh, at the same time instilled feelings of contempt and distrust for ordinary people. So that's that was my sort of first introduction, you know, more than a decade ago. And then I think once these sort of insurgencies started to erupt, uh, first in India, then of course United States, uh, in Europe, I read, started to read Rousseau more sort of, you know, systematically, more systematically than I'd done before, and, and, and realized actually that, you know, in many ways, he anticipates many of our problems, discontents, fears, anxieties. And this is because he's, he's, he's sort of, you know, he's present at the beginning of the modern age, uh, by, by which I mean the, the age in which, you know, there's a sort of new set of ideas coming into play, the idea of freedom from external authority, whether the church or the monarchy, the idea that man can use reason to advance, uh, the discoveries of science uh, will help improve man's material lot, the idea that rational debate can be at the basis of politics, that self-interest is a, is, a, is a major ingredient in, uh, in, in, in progress, and uh, so our commerce and trade, and also, you know, the idea that intellectual sophistication, cultural sophistication are worthy ideals. Now, Rousseau is there at this moment, and he emerges as a critic of many of these ideas. In that sense, he's a sort of, he's a critic, internal critic of the Enlightenment. And his biggest adversary, of course, is Voltaire, a different social class, uh, different location, and Voltaire is, of course, on the side of people who believe that greater wealth, prosperity, commerce, trade, the use of reason, uh, this, this is inaugurating a new phase altogether in, in, in human history. And, and Rousseau is someone deeply skeptical of these notions because he finds that the notion of intellectual talent, merit, which uh, the philosophers are upholding and you know saying that this is this is a new way in which individuals or human in individuals can identify themselves can project themselves in society for him merit i mean again you know there's been so much talk about there's been actually now uh, quite a series of books about you know meritocracy and how dangerous it is to the psychological health of of, of uh, you know many people who do not have the ability to acquire that kind of intellectual merit or, or do not, or born in certain circumstances where they're not able to acquire those. 
And he was, you know, he was already there in the late 18th century critiquing this notion of intellectual talent, intellectual merit, and saying that this is, you know, we are making an entire class of people, working classes, peasants, we make them feel ashamed because they have inferior cognitive abilities. Uh, and if you reduce the value of a person's life to their intellectual talents, uh, then a lot of people are going to feel very, very painful existential anxieties and succumb, become very vulnerable to a sense of worthlessness. Um, so, you know, this is, you know, sort of this, this, this particular notion of vanity, of self-interest that is very commonplace in his time, and he emerges as the most radical critic of these notions. And, you know, I think it has partly to do with this biography, you know, not actually coming from a metropolitan location, but from somewhere just outside it, from Geneva, uh, not belonging to a patrician family or even a, you know, sort of stable middle-class family, uh, having known, having seen social inequality early in his life, all of that sort of creates this very intriguing character. I mean, Isaiah Berlin called him the greatest militant lowbrow in history, which is absolutely right. I mean, I think until actually Donald Trump came along and challenged uh, and made a claim on that distinction. But in, in, in many ways, he's a sort of precursor of all those many hundreds of millions of people who have felt left behind by the march of modern civilization, by the ideologies of progress, who feel that these have not worked out for them uh, and they have actually left them feeling not only left out, but actively scorned and, and marginalized. So in, in, in that context, I think his ideas, his diagnosis in particular, uh, there is of course his solutions, you know, political community. And I think he's also important because he does give an importance to political activity, which again, I mean, not very few people at the time were were, were giving. Um, I think the his many of his peers were perfectly happy with the idea of of an aristocratic ruling class, but he's you know he's actually interested in in, in democracy, inequality, in the equality of citizens. So those are also again incendiary ideas, you know, and and we in many ways we're seeing still seeing the revolution. He, he sort of, you know, sparked off mm. working his way around the world. So as you say, he's an internal critic. I always feel with him, and, and this connects to Nietzsche a bit too, that he does understand it from both sides in the sense that the, there are different Rousseaus. There's the Rousseau of the Confessions, there's the Rousseau of the Social Contract, there's the Rousseau of the Discourses, who's the one I'm most interested in. And the Rousseau of the Discourses gets the way in which that dynamic that you described of with the rise of arts and commerce and science and the creation of these new classes of people rising by their brain power and so on, creates a, a class of people who feel left behind and looked down on. But it's a trap for the intellectuals as well. I mean, he sees it both ways. He sees the way in which it's this mutual relationship. And contemporary politics has so much of that in it, in the, in the sense that the intellectual can see how terrible it is to be so patronizing. You know, the, the elites can see the, the danger of it. And yet there's such a strong sense often that they can't see a way out. And that, I mean, so, so the social contract and so on is a sort of way out, a, a, a radical and quite demanding, as he said, austere way out. But as a diagnostic of it, it I just, it really speaks to me that the mutual trap, does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. No, I think in many ways, I mean, he's sort of describing a kind of impasse for political society, for this new community, this new society in general, but also for people who've set themselves up as a sort of intellectual arbiters of that of that society. I think in many ways, Nietzsche sort of advances that critique, but in, and I think in also more fundamental philosophical ways, but I think Rousseau is also very concerned with social class and the injuries of class in a way that Nietzsche is simply not. And, you know, he's kind of, he, he tends to see too much through this prism of ressentiment and 
is not simply not aware of the the political and economic context in which Rousseau is arguing. And of course, I think it becomes you know these problems that Rousseau has has diagnosed become more and more acute because in many ways the society is describing is a sort of pre-industrial society. It's it's not you know fully developed capitalist society. Uh, once industrial capitalism gets underway, so then those problems of you know specialist elites, technocratic elites, ruling classes, uh, the gap between ruling classes and ordinary people becomes wider. And then of course you have this other great diagnostician of modernity emerge in the mid 19th century, Marx, who's you know obviously interested in, in, in a different kind of contradiction between labor and capital. But I think Rousseau still seems the more acute diagnostician of the divide itself of the kind of bourgeois mentality and of the general impasse of modernity, I think. Just just at the moment that it sort of that it begins, that there are some really very severe crippling contradictions in this project. And those contradictions are actually they originate in, in, in the very soul of the bourgeois individual that we're all aspiring to be, moving away from our villages and, and, and small towns. And do you think it's partly the, the the extra acuity with Rousseau because he is the author of the Confessions? So there's that other aspect to him. There's you know, he he's the in a way the first great modern confessional psychological autobiographer, and he, he's you know, that book is such a strange book because it's so off-putting in so many ways. It's so creepily modern in so many ways um, and creepy as well. But it. He's almost unique as a political analyst in having really looked into himself. I mean, really looked in and not shied away from what he saw. Although oh, yeah, well, he, then, he then dressed it up, but he didn't shy away from it. Absolutely. And, and you know, posits no easy redemption for himself either. I mean, you know, it's not, religion is not waiting there to, to save him. It's a really very unvarnished look at the most sordid aspects of, of human behavior as manifested by his. Um, by his, by his own self. Uh, so in that sense, he's a sort of really unsparing witness to these sort of contradictions that he sees in this new commercial society in general, but also, you know, I mean, he, he can see it so clearly because he can see his own pain, he can see his own sort of divisions so, uh, so clearly. And I'm sure he felt too, like Voltaire, this attraction to people from the aristocracy, from ruling classes, the idea that he could too, he too could be a counselor to the powerful, have their ear. I'm sure he felt those impulses uh, too within himself, and at the same time felt also the deep shame that went into those impulses. Probably keener, uh, felt them more deeply than 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 the people who were actually counseling the powerful, like uh, like Voltaire. There's shame with. Rousseau, and then, as you say, with Nietzsche, those ressentiments, and I mean, I describe them in the in the series of talks that I did as the two great unmaskers. They they see through. There's a kind of almost magical quality to what they see behind and through. But with Nietzsche, you also get this this thing that's not there with Rousseau. I mean, Rousseau understands powerlessness, and he understands the trap of power. But what you get with Nietzsche, Nietzsche's genius is to see that the powerless will find an outlet. You know, that famous line that people would rather will nothing than not have a will. They will find an out. And in the age of anger, you do, I think, if I get this right, you do see that in, in 21st century populism. You do see it in, in the anger, particularly of the young, but not exclusively of the young. Is that what you get from Nietzsche, that sense that people, the many, countless millions of people who are relatively powerless in this world, nonetheless, are always looking for outlets for their, their will to power, to use the Nietzschean phrase. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for Nietzsche, there is no shame. In fact, shame is something to be overcome. Shame is something yeah. he connects with a discredited, according to him, religion, Christianity. So. It's the unabashed indulgence in passions in the embrace of the will to power as really the fundamental reality of human life. That is what he he advocates. And you know, it's again interesting that he was hugely popular. Nietzsche was extremely popular, very 
soon after publication. We know, we know about his European reputation, but he was very popular among students from places like India and China who were exposed to Western thought at the time. In fact, again, I mean, I, I think the very first time I came across his name was in Jawaharlal Nehru's um, autobiography, uh, the first prime minister of, of, of independent India. And he was in, he was either at Cambridge, uh, I think he was at Cambridge, where he said that, you know, everyone around him was reading, reading Nietzsche. Um, true. <laughs> uh, he, he has a special appeal for adolescents with this sort of idea of will to power and over, overcoming shame and all those uh, emotions branded as shameful by organized religion. But in this case, he was appealing to people from what were then colonized countries because this idea of self-creation uh, in, in many of those countries, the idea of a political community, a political collectivity was still in its infancy. You know, you didn't really have political movements, anti-colonial movements. So you had these intellectuals from these oppressed countries uh, exposed to these ideas of a German writer. And they were absolutely galvanized uh, by this notion that, you know, uh, you don't have to rely upon traditional ideas, received ideas that you can create your own reality, the sort of idea of self-overcoming, of, you know, overthrowing uh, traditional religion, traditional sources of authority. And again, I mean, one of his great fans in China was China's, you know, premier modern writer of fiction, Lu Xun. Also, it's actually interesting, I mean, Lu Xun, very, very left-wing, that his appeal cut across, you know, I, what we think of as ideological boundaries of left and right. So you had Lushun, you had Maxim Gorky, you had the Bolsheviks very interested in, in, in Nietzsche, the early Zionists extremely interested in, in him, very inspired by him. So he sort of gives to many individuals at the time the sort of this 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 idea of self-creation, self-overcoming, and how again, you know, we, we can sort of break free of all that has happened uh, before and that we can sort of create this own little reality. But I think connecting him to Rousseau, one of the more interesting ideas that he, you know, I think elaborates at great length is a sort of idea which you just mentioned about ressentiment and that notion, that, that sort of sentiment which simmers and simmers uh, until it explodes uncontrollably and becomes a major social and political force. I mean, that has been, I suppose, consistently verified by uh, political events uh, right from the right from the late 19th century onwards. But there's something else that is interesting about Nietzsche that I find that in many ways, I mean, he comes, I suppose, roughly a century after uh, Rousseau. And I think it's, his sort of fate in many ways to deal with problems that Rousseau never faced, uh, which is that, you know, all, modernity has already kind of achieved a sort of many of its major institutions, political institutions, economic institutions, whether it's nation states, capitalism, they're all already in place by the time Nietzsche becomes aware of the world around him and starts to think about these issues. So I think Many of the notions that Rousseau's peers were advocating, such as the idea of, you know, rational debate or politics is based on, you know, rational debate and contestation of ideas. I think uh, Nietzsche is in a position to see that what they were expecting would happen, which is that you diminish religion, you, you, you undercut religious authority, and that sort of creates the conditions for irrational and scientific worldview, uh, what had actually happened in many ways, uh, what we are still living with today is that the decline of traditional sources of authority had created the stage for kind of a chaotic multiplicity of viewpoints, all kind of competing, all you know, infused with the will to power. And this pluralism, uh, this very chaotic pluralism becomes more and more unmanageable as societies uh, grow more and more atomized and unequal at the same time. So I think he was also one of the first to identify this, this sort of very alarming possibility that our ideas of truth are a kind of illusion backed by power 
and that, uh, as you put it famously, there are no facts, only only interpretations, and that all claims to truth uh, can be exposed, and what can be revealed behind them is the will to power. Uh, in, in that sense, I mean, I you know, I often think, I think I've written about this somewhere, that we're all Nietzscheans now uh, in the way we dismantle each other's, our, 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 other people's claims to truth and advance our own claims, uh, all of us inhabiting a particular version of reality, and this is obviously amplified by social media, and in many ways, social media has sort of decentralized the old information disseminating technologies, which were kind of, you know, monopoly. Um, so, as we can see, anyone can report on events and generate opinions and perceptions and sort of fight for their, fight for their uh, position. So, in many ways, Nietzsche anticipated this kind of epistemological nihilism or, or, or you know, chaotic uh, pluralism. It's very interesting to have these two writers described quintessential European writers, Rousseau and Nietzsche, often associated with particular political events, unfairly probably in both cases, Rousseau with the French Revolution, Nietzsche with the catastrophe of fascism, and, and both of them in different ways trapped in a, in a sort of political European trajectory. So when they're read outside of Europe, outside of the West, outside of the United States, do they, how differently do they read? Are they are they emancipated from that context and that sort of blame game as to who's responsible for which of the European disasters? Do they read I, differently? I think they do, you know, partly because of their status as outsiders in their own societies. I mean, it, I think it's interesting how you can read both of these writers. I mean, I think it's also important to stress that they're both writers. They're not institutionally affiliated. They're not academic philosophers like, you know, many of the philosophers and political thinkers you've discussed in this mm. series. They are very much independent souls opposed to the main tendencies of their own society. So in that sense, they feel, I mean, I think it's possible to read them without ever implicating them in these histories of violence and oppression and intimidation. That even someone like John Stuart Mill can be, you know, implicated in with this, you know, account of liberalism and, and the fact that Indians don't deserve self-rule. Um, they have to be educated to receive self-rule. Like Nietzsche doesn't have any of these notions, nor, nor does, you know, Rousseau. So in that sense, they are far more easy, more accessible thinkers. And of course, they write very clearly, both of them. So that's, again, you know, I mean, anyone who's tried to read Hegel, would be immediately delighted to read, you know, someone like Nietzsche or, or, or Rousseau for that matter. And again, I mean, I think uh, with that sort of investment, that personal investment they have in everything they write, it's possible to read them as novelists, at, as creators of literature, as creators, mm -hmm. of, you know, kind of autobiographical literature with some philosophical digressions in between. So it's a completely different experience altogether. In the Age of Anger, you also talked about other 19th century European writers and, and political figures like Mazzini and so on, and the, the odd life that they have, often out of time in a way, as these ideas travel around the world and they, they take root in places often much later unexpectedly. Do you think we're at the start of the reverse of that process? So we've, you know, the, the history of the 19th, 18th, 19th and 20th century is, is of Western ideas finding their way around the world, then mutating, often arising in a different form, in a different context, having a very different um, outcome. But we haven't yet quite, I think, seen the reverse. But presumably we will. I mean, it, or, or is that... I think it's, it's still too early to say, but is that is that tide turning? I think it is, but very, very slowly, because I don't think institutionally Europe and America are equipped, not to mention, you know, politically, there's a lot of resistance to revising the canon of including, you know, what are mostly unknown figures into the into the canon. So there is, I think it's a, it's a very gradual process. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of opposition, sometimes emerging from from uh, within academia. But I think, I mean, nobody can deny that, you know, it, there has always been a great need to include these voices, 
to include the experiences of, you know, essentially a vast majority of the world's population to consider their political and philosophical traditions. I mean, here we are, you know, we talk, there's so much talk about the rise of the East, the rise of China, and how little we actually know about the Chinese philosophical tradition, or even, you know, modern Chinese thought. Um, the engagement of modern Chinese intellectuals with even, you know, figures like Nietzsche. I mean, this is all still a kind of story that has not been properly told. The Even the dissemination of Western ideas in many of them, uh, that's not a story that's fully told. So I think, I mean, there are these very serious imbalances of intellectual life that have to be addressed. And, you know, these other political resources and traditions retrieved, but I think, I mean, my feeling is that there is another problem because in many ways, the if political ideas are primarily about justice, welfare, then I think, you know, in many ways, uh, the ideas that emanate in the modern era from various countries like India or China are not very different. I mean, they're also, you know, someone like Gandhi who, at, at one level seems very unlike most Western thinkers, almost always. He is also deeply concerned with the question of democracy. He's also deeply con concerned with the question of um, justice and, and equality, but he's also concerned with something else. And I think that's where the anti-colonial tradition is. He's, he's, he's interested in the question of modernity and the question modernity poses to the survival of the planet. And I think that's where that anti-colonial tradition could become more important in the sense that, I mean, you know, people have started to talk uh, at great length of the Anthropocene. And if you really do believe that, if, if you do think that man is no longer, human beings are no longer social or political animals, uh, they are that, but they're also now geological uh, agents that they are actually in many ways intervening in very important ways in, in processes in which they previously had no role whatsoever. So that again, I mean, I think creates another set of questions and problems and dilemmas that certainly, you know, none of these people, Nietzsche and Rousseau and most, you know, political tradition in any country has really dealt with. I was just gonna say, do you think Part of it is because the Western tradition is so enthralled to the idea of the nation state. So even the, the critical voices, that is the frame. And Gandhi, for instance, is not, and many other writers are not. And in the 21st century, the nation state has still got a lot of life left in it. But the question of, of the scale and the level at which political action will have to be taken, whether it's more global or more local, um, the different ways in which it might be possible for communities to express themselves. Do you think that there's a much richer tradition outside of the West? Because the West is, it is the, the canon, is constrained in essentially by a European idea born of a particular continent, divided up in particular ways, fighting particular kinds of wars, and then creating welfare and justice states off the back of that. And there's an imagination, a political imagination out there, which is just not present for Europeans and by extension for America, North Americans. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think uh, there's this realization which starts very early on in the late 19th century, in the early uh, 20th century among anti-colonial thinkers is that this vision of politics, this vision of society is not gonna work for us. It's not gonna work for large numbers of people, essentially the great majority of the world's population is not going to achieve political modernity, material modernity ever. This is, these are some very emphatic conclusions uh, already being reached in the late 19th century, well before we became aware of the environmental constraints on, on, on modern progress. So that again, you know, brings into question this whole tradition. Uh, is this only really about a certain handful of expanding societies in the 18th century, 19th century, uh, they then go to war, two wars, achieve a degree of equilibrium for a few decades and then again plunge back into crisis uh, which is not just political but also environmental so i think it, it sort of raises really in, in very significant ways this anti-colonial tradition the question of the overall tra trajectory of modern civilization 
whether this is really sustainable, whether it's even sustainable as we are now finding out for the very progenit, I mean, the people who, who originated uh, modernity, whether it's even, even works for them. And that I think uh, really then raises all kinds of questions about, you know, so what have we really been thinking about or what have we been focusing on all this time if the nation state doesn't quite work, if the idea of sovereignty doesn't work for, let's say, many islands that might go underwater in the next 10 years, 15 years, that have a seat in the United Nations. Have you thought about what sovereignty then means in that context, you know? Mm. I mean, simple things like that. So those are, I think, questions that now, you know, are sort of looming before us. And I think we have very few answers. I mean, partly because we haven't even begun to properly formulate uh, the, the, the questions correctly. So I have found it interesting to think in the within the Western tradition about these ideas at the point where they are, I think, at their limits. I mean, I think we are, in a sense, it is a dying tradition, I think. Um, I think many of the the intellectual building blocks ha have been exposed, not, not just in a sort of Rousseau-Nietzsche sense, by what's been built on top of them is no longer sustainable. And, and so there is a richness to the tradition, which is almost a sort of more noticeable at the point where it's most noticeably in decline. But that still doesn't answer the question of what we need to supplement it with. So what, what or who, which books, which writers do you think we need to bring in to, the, to this, this canon from the outside? Well, I think, you know, not even sort of books from the outside. I mean, obviously there are, you know, figures like Gandhi or uh, someone like Rabindranath Tagore. I mean, again, not sort of systematic philosophers, not academic philosophers. In one case, a poet and a, and a novelist. But again, I think the quality of their perceptions, um, the quality of their criticisms of secular modernity and the relationship between human beings and nature, all those questions that were once, you know, seen as a sort of realm of poets or, or romantics of a certain sort, which have now become existential questions for many of us. Those are uh, extremely important. I mean, I think the question of books, again, becomes very, it becomes complicated to answer because, you know, again, knowledge of that kind or criticism of that kind or those traditions have not really been systematized in the way the Western tradition has been. So no one can point to an already existing library. I mean, obviously, you know, that process took hundreds of years to be accomplished in the West and the construction of the West or the Western archive took hundreds of years. There's been no such process in what we call the East or what we call Asia. Uh, there's never been that degree of coordination. So I think intellectual resources are scattered. Intellectual archives are not, not centralized. But I think you know we would do a sort of you know we could we could do a modest start by looking at some of these anti-colonial figures and uh, what they were writing about in the late 19th century and uh, and early 20th century. So that's you know I think uh, I mean in many ways we are quite far from even that particular approach. It's it's only very recently in my own lifetime in the last 10-15 years that we've actually seen serious attention being paid to say the Indian intellectual tradition. There are a couple of books coming out this year, including by one of your colleagues, uh, Shruti Kapila, which will introduce, you know, some of the some of the major thinkers of India in the last century to a modern audience. Those uh, these are kind of in a way a beginning of a process whereby one gets acquainted bit by bit with the with the richness of that tradition. As you said the the Western canon is, apart from anything else, a particular genre. It's, it's books, big books, men writing big books and big thoughts. And a lot of political writing is more dispersed than that. It's, it's dispersed in its form and it's dispersed geographically. In the age of the internet, being dispersed oughtn't to be a disadvantage. In a sense, a more fragmented political understanding, it, new voices could be found and heard. And yet we also know we're living in a a long tail world or a parallel world or whatever you want to call it where there are lots and lots of small ideas but the few big ideas are still dominant and they're dominant on platforms that are dominant 
and they're dominant in a medium where English is dominant and where North American companies are dominant. You know, it's it's I think at least possible to think that it pulls the other way. And this this technology, which ought to be more open to multiple voices, is actually shrinking our imagination. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think in that sense, what we first we started out with, the ideology of modernity is now truly universal. I mean, I think, you know, people in India believe in it, people in China believe in it. So instead of an enrichment, there has been actually, in a way, an impoverishment uh, in the sense that some older ideas, older traditions have been driven out by the success of this sort of universalizing ideology of commerce and trade and you know the same sort of things that Rousseau was was uh, was critiquing back in the back in the 18th century so I'm going to ask uh, some questions that have come in the one here which is I think a really good one and this is to go back to Nietzsche a bit and Rousseau and, and Ressentiment and so on so your description of Ressentiment is often al aligned with the young and the marginalized young people young countries but how does that way of thinking make sense of countries like the modern UK or USA, as it says here, where the old are the resentful ones? And and where in, indeed, I mean, I think you talk about this a bit in, in the age of anger, but um, anger is not just the young anymore. I mean, if you think of Donald Trump, ang anger is not simply young people, young men on the streets. We live in an angry world and anger is, multi-generational. How should we think about the resentment of the old? Well, it's also true for, you know, countries like India, where some of the older people have uh, the most reactionary and sometimes extremely bigoted positions on all, all kinds of things. And they often happen to be people who are afraid of losing social status, who feel that their position as upper caste men is being endangered by politically assertive Dalits or, or, or Muslims, uh, in their imagination at least, and that the minorities, in other words, are getting uppity, uh, getting the upper hand. Now that kind of fear, which is, you know, something I also see in the, in the UK amongst, you know, uh, uh, older generation of conservative voters, um, the ideas of minorities are being pampered. Now, I mean, no one really said that this is an emotion confined to the young or people who are just arriving in the modern world and finding themselves blocked by an older elite or networked elite. This is also the fate of people who fear the loss of status, whether because of the political assertiveness of certain people or whether you know, the loss of professions, the arrival of large numbers of people who have been educated in, 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 in expensive institutions and are extremely networked and have created very vibrant and sometimes very ostentatious cultures of consumption. Uh, I mean, the sources of Rizontimor are various. And again, I mean, I don't think they can be really in, in that, that sentiment, that feeling can be confined to the young alone, I think um, wherever promise of equality collides with, and again, I mean, the promise of equality lies at the basis of all our societies. I mean, apart from you know a few exceptions like North Korea and Cuba, but that promise, uh, when that collides with actually deep structural inequalities, I think that's where resent re resentment will uh, will will flourish. Actually, you know, someone who did give a kind of sociological aspect to this, uh, orientation to this, was Max uh, Scheler, I think, who sort of really systematized this theory. Also brought in Tocqueville uh, and his analysis of envy and, and sort of, you know, desire for emulation, which creates conflict. That is very applicable in our societies today. And just one extension of this, because when Rousseau was writing, when Nietzsche was writing, one aspect of global uniformity is that all societies were dominated by youth because young people were in the majority everywhere that's very you know, the, the, the median age everywhere was you know in Nietzsche's time was around 30. and now we live in a world which is so I, I think this is a neglected feature of our world it is so varied in its demography parts of Africa are still massively dominated just numerically by people under the age of in some places 18, in other places 21 or 25. Societies like Japan, 
Greece, Spain, which are, they are dying. I mean, they are elderly societies, they are pensioner societies. You have <clears throat> pensioner societies and you have school children societies. And if you think of the comparison between Trump and Modi that has often been made, lots of similarities. And yet, you know, India is by no means the youngest society in the world, but relatively speaking, it is still a majority youth society. And America is increasingly not. How much difference do you think that makes to the politics? If you look at the Modi-Trump comparison, how much difference does it make that Modi is still nonetheless speaking primarily in democratic or popular terms for majority youth? Unfortunately, I mean, that adds to his longevity. I think mm. um, he's going to be, he's going to remain a formidable political force as a result of this sort of emotional, psychological connection he's made with very many young people. Because he, again, in a very Rousseauian sense, he articulates their resentment that, you know, here I am, the son of a modest uh, chaiwala tea seller, and I've spent my life being victimized, being scorned by this English-speaking elite, uh, the sort of, you know, rootless cosmopolitans who have no connection with India, who have no connections with Bharat, and that uh, they are people who have monop monopolized the benefits of modernity for themselves. I'm going to be the one who shares that, shares those benefits uh, equally. Uh, I'm going to be the one, essentially, who brings you true modernity. So that appeal, which, you know, Trump really did not have, uh, certainly not to this extent, and, and again, as you say, I mean, it's not really helped by the demographic composition of the of the United States, um, which meant that, you know, someone like him could be defeated. Whereas uh, I, I, I fear that Modi's appeal lies in some very deep social ambitions and indeed uh, deep resentments and, and, and feelings of vengeance too, that this elite which has humiliated us for such a long time now has to be humiliated in return. I mean, things might change with this sort of uh, this calamitous handling of the of the pandemic, uh, but I fear they may not change as dramatically as many of us would like. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. We have a question asking us if you imagine in 2050 uh, constructing a, a history of ideas a new canon, who writing now would you put in it? Who, are the, who, who do you think are the writers? And I think we can broaden this beyond sort of theory or political philosophy, but people who are writing and thinking about politics, I love who to you think, think might be canonical in 30 years time. I love to think about that one, actually. I might have to sit down and, and uh, write a list. Yeah, I, I'm also back. thinking, <laughs> okay, should we come back to that? If, if a name comes to you, then um, let's do it. So there's another question here, which is of the thinkers that we, we've been talking about, and, and it's partly for me and the thinkers that I've discussed, but I think it applies more broadly. Um, and it certainly touches on your point about getting outside of certain kinds of traditions. Of the thinkers that we've been talking about, who are the most supportive of, but also who are the most cynical about the idea that human societies have in some way progressed or are progressing? The progress is one of the dominant motifs of the modern age in both Rousseau and Nietzsche, in their different ways, I think, saw both its appeal and its illusions. So, first of all, where, where are you on that? Are you, a, are you a skeptic about ideas and ideals of progress? But then who do you think, apart from the people we've talked about, best sees through it? I think probably Nietzsche, because he's so suspicious of anything that he sees as a sort of essentially a secular modern version of Christianity that he becomes the most acute critic of the ideology of progress. And I think, you know, the way he strikes at it is by basically questioning uh, whether reason is really going to get us there, whether it's just not, you know, going to create a whole lot of, you know, sort of 
truth centers, as it were, people vending their own idea of the truth and create a kind of chaos, you know, the kind that we are witnessing today. And I think he's a great skeptic. He's, he's, he has no time for political community. He's, he has no time for socialism. By the time he's writing, that becomes a very important dominant idea in the European consciousness. And yet he sees, again, yet again, he sees um, a very sort of lowly form of Rizontimo working behind the demands for, for justice and uh, redistribution. So he's sort of, in, in, in that sense, he is also a critic of nationalism, a very, very strong critic of it. He sees the nation state as yet another essentially mechanism of, of, of enslavement. And mind you, he's, he's doing it all from what we would today recognize as a reactionary speaking of a true aristocracy, of human aristocracy, speaking of the Superman. Uh, but even coming from those deeply objectionable standpoints, he does see that actually, you know, human beings are not really motivated by something as simple as self-interest that commerce and trade are not going to you know provide they might provide material goods to some people but they're not going to be at the basis of stable societies all of that uh, in that sense he's a he's a true dissenter from the mainstream 19th century ideology which is really of progress which in many ways we're still working with i mean what this question makes me think of is partly a, a writer that i didn't talk about i mentioned him in passing George Sorel, who wrote a great book called The Illusions of Progress at the turn of the 20th century, a Marxist. I mean, in a way, what, what's clear is that even the great critics of progress have an underlying conception of things getting better. It's incredibly hard to get away from, even as you demolish the sort of Western liberal notion of progress from the idea that something might better might emerge from it. But Sorel was a devastating critic of particularly sort of late 19th century French illusions about progress. And Sorel is often uh, associated because he also wrote a book called Reflections on Violence with Franz Fanon, who I did talk about. And Fanon, again, on the one hand, is an absolutely brutal demolisher of the illusions of Western European progress. And at the same time, has a very clear understanding that something better is coming, the African version of, of not just of politics, but of a kind of cosmic um community uh, and yet these writers are ruthless in their takedown of almost to go back to where we started the sort of technocratic rationalist liberal soft idea about progress that almost all of us secretly have sort of signed up to so that would, yeah. i mean in a sense i think there are you know there are these um great writers but the the, the true nihilists who kind of taken progress out altogether are rare, I think. Um, very, very rare. I mean, I think, you know, you could argue that Panon uh, is, is an interesting example, but, you know, the first generation of post-colonial leaders, or even the second or third generation, I don't think they were ever more strident advocates of the European ideology yeah. of progress than people like Nehru or Sukarno or Mao. They were complete believers in the ideology of modernization and, and, and development and industrialization, mass consumption. Uh, whether socialist or right-wing or centrist or whatever, they all subscribe to this 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 notion. So it, it's actually extremely rare. And that's why I think you know people like Gandhi and Tagore are important because they could see the flaws right away in that particular ideology. They also saw the ideologies as connected to this very destructive notions of economic expansion, endless economic expansion, endless economic growth, which was taking a huge toll on the on on the planet. It does remind me, I talked about this and when I talked about Gandhi, but I still like the connection, which I'm sure is there, which is, I mean, Gandhi also had this sort of prophetic glimpse of a technological future when he, he talks in Hind Swaraj about the world that's coming where we're all going to just press buttons and you know, food will arrive <clears throat> and the newspaper will appear before you. And you know, he, he says, you'll press a button and a motor car will arrive at your house. Um, and, you know, this is not going to end well. Yeah. And he and he took it almost certainly from Ian Forster's The Machine Stops, which I think he read oh, on, his, on the ship yeah. on the way on the way back. And that that famous story. Um and I, I just like the idea that somehow Forster and Gandhi were the two who saw a hundred years ahead, literally nineteen oh nine, 
uh, where we were heading. Because there is, you know, there's the hyper version of progress, which is tech utopian, you know, the, the current tech utopianism. And a lot of these earlier writers, and it includes, I think, the Frankfurt School as well. I mean, many pre-digital age thinkers are the best critics of the illusions of technological progress. So we have a question here about um, sort of, I suppose, intellectual ambition, and you can answer it any way you like, but do we think that the golden age of ambitious synthesis is past? I mean, it relates to the sort of big books question as well. It touches a bit on what you were saying about how this is a, there's a genre of the, of the big political book. Are people still, do you think people are still writing those books that really do try and pull it all together? I mean, if I think of the book which I started the first series with, Hobbes' Leviathan, which I still think is probably, in its way, you know, the most completely intellectually ambitious book of them all. It just tries to cover absolutely everything. Science, social science, literature, humour, you know, the lot. Do you think we've lost that? Which book did you have in mind? Sorry, which book was that? Oh, Leviathan. So Hobbes' Leviathan, Leviathan, which is... Yeah. I mean, yeah. literally everything is in there. He just, you know, here's someone who just didn't recognize any of our distinctions between um, yeah, any I of the categories of intellectual life. Well, I think the intellectual life has been really complicated by uh, the awareness of the global and global processes. So it's really, I mean, you know, I was also thinking of, uh, on a modest scale, much less influence, Ed G. Wells's Short History of the World. I mean, those kinds of books were still possible to write because you were dimly aware of what was happening on India, you know, some other part of the world, and you tried as best as you could to bring that into your into your work. But, you know, I think a little went a long way. Now it's very, very difficult to write those kinds of synoptic accounts of the modern world, or indeed to prescribe uh, or to have that kind of overview, because we are confronted with this sort of bewildering um, you know, multiplicity of, of societies, of political structures, economic institutions, some of which are, you know, not even, we, some of which we are not even aware of. And so it's, and, and although we know, we actually know that they're out there, still waiting to be written about. So I think those kinds of projects have become really difficult. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people still attempt and, you know, and I think succeed in writing those kinds of books. Uh, it's not a philosophical book, but the Christopher Bailey books about the modern world, mm. I think they are, I mean, triumphant vindications of, you know, this ambition to write a history of the modern world that does take into account all kinds of different varied uh, processes. And it also takes into account what was happening in, in Java, uh, what the bourgeoisie or the or the sort of merchants of Java were up to, and what role did they play in the European networks? I mean, all those kinds of things are there. So I think you know, in that sense, we need more global histories uh, of that kind. And we certainly need more sort of global history of ideas. I mean, there's so so many things that are still underexplored, like influence of Zen Buddhism on Heidegger. I think you know, we need a kind of proper account of that, so we can also then see two philosophical traditions in. In, in, in dialogue with each other, the influence of Buddhism on on Nietzsche. Nietzsche's uh, closest friend was uh, was an Indologist. He was the one who introduced them to Indian philosophy, and and you know the number of times he writes about Buddhism is really striking. Um, I mean, I, I I wrote about it at length, not knowing much about the subject, but again, I, mean, I think these are things that only a really ambitious uh, global history of ideas. And, and also the influence of Islamic thought on early modern European thought too, which is much neglected. But as you were speaking, it did make me think that in a way, I think the one answer to the question is that the history books have got bigger and the philosophy books have got smaller in a way. I think it used to be the other way around, but you know, there's no lack of ambition. History is the subject where people want to tell the history of everything, the, the long, the really long histories. I mean, one possible answer to the question of what are the canonical books going to be? I mean, I don't suppose Yuval Harari Sapiens will be that book, but I think it's at least possible that his book Homo Deus or, or one of the other kind of grand placing of the tech revolution in a while, or Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, these books that, if they're right, that we're on the cusp of something which by 2050 is going to look like the, the human condition having changed, then I guess those humans who are still reading will be possibly reading those books. But I mean, That's Sapiens, it seems to me a good example of, you know, just 
there are really ambitious and works of ambitious synthesis that are widely read. They're just not works of political philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although I'm glad you in included that um, qualification. If people are still reading, because at that point they maybe read more closely than than actually read. I think. Yeah. yeah. So there's a question here. You can answer it. You can take it and answer it how you would like. But you, you discuss the ways in which the social positioning of Nietzsche and Rousseau, their, their, their experience of their societies, influence the arguments they made. So how do you think your experience of your society, your social positioning, has shaped the, the things you've written and the, the political views that you have? How, oh, how are you conditioned? Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's a process of becoming slowly aware which you know everything you write uh, it takes you uh, a bit deeper into this discovery just how you came to formulate certain ideas about the world and again i mean i think in my instance belonging to a um, upper caste family that had fallen on hard times the sort of classic sort of setting for resentment where you enjoy superior status because you're born a brahmin but at the same time, you feel yourself outpaced by various people, many of whom happen to be low caste Hindus, Muslims, and, and other minorities, uh, not to mention women. And many of the people that I knew growing up, and many of the people in my immediate family were, you know, Hindu nationalists. They were, you know, essentially believers in the same sort of creed that Modi believes in. So I was exposed very early on to the sort of I suppose the recipes for resentment and feeling that you've been, in a way, uh, the life uh, or the dignity that your ancestors had earned is slowly dwindling, it's leaking away, and you need someone to restore it. And that uh, you don't have access to the goods, the new goods that are offered because you've not been educated properly, that you don't speak the, the language, which is the language of modernization and globalization properly, all those kinds of sources of anxiety and pain, which are, you know, mind you, universal in places like India, were something that I, you know, felt and saw around me. So in that sense, I think, you know, writing from a position of marginality, having access at the same time to the center, since I write for you know, mainstream newspapers and periodicals, um, but also spend a lot of time in places where a very completely different reality obtains. So that's, you know, in a way, a kind of my sort of writerly privilege of having access to those particular worlds. But yes, absolutely. I think uh, my own sort of class geographical location has determined uh, to a great extent, you know, what I'm interested in and how I write. I want to finish. We've got, got 10 more minutes and there are a few questions about this, so I want to frame it in a particular way, sort of asking about where ideas might come from from outside, not just the usual canon, but the usual sources. Should we be looking at different kinds of writing? Should we be looking at more literary writing? Should we be looking potentially at works of fiction? And I've been thinking a bit about, I don't know when I'll do it, but what might be in the third series of History of Ideas. And one thought that I've had is that um, a lot of the greatest writing about politics is fiction. And that there are great political novels. Um, I mean, there's a question about whether all novels are political at some level, because all novels presumably at some level are about both power and community, the, the, the big novels. Uh, but if you were thinking, so if we, if we turn this around slightly the other way and you were thinking about a history of ideas that looked at fiction, what, what are the books that you would want to include in that, that canon of the great political novels? Definitely Rousseau, don't you think? I mean, best-selling novel of the 18th century sort of starts off a kind of at least um, uh, emotional upheaval. Mm. Everyone read that novel back yeah. then, and even late in the 19th century. Standal, mm. Red in the Black, very political novel. Again, I mean, I think Nietzsche actually was hugely influenced by it, and in fact, a lot of his ideas of resentment can be can be sort of drawn can be traced back to that to that particular novel. Definitely Dostoevsky. And and Dostoevsky, which would it be the I mean, sometimes the devils, the possessed. possessed I mean, there yeah. is there there is the great you know the great novel of political madness essentially. 
best, yeah. And, and I think Orhan um, Panuk Snow is a, isn't it? It's a modern updating of that, of a, of a town cut off yeah. um, in Turkey and the ways in which a community cut off can send itself mad. Mad, um, yeah. Definitely Zola. And uh, which, which, novels of, uh, which novel of his, though? I think the debacle, probably the most engaged yeah. with the events of his time, yeah. which doesn't really have to be the sole criteria, but Conrad, secret agent? Yeah. I mean, Heart of Darkness is an obvious choice, but the secret agent is more interesting and under Western eyes too is, is um, I mean, that sort of deals very directly with what was becoming a commonplace phenomena back then, um, anar groups of anarchists and terrorists. And then, of course, I mean, I think the 19th, 20th century really is sort of flourishing of political novels there uh, with Andre Malraux and Kessler, the uh, repentant communist, Silone, Orwell, although mm. obvious choice slightly. And then, of course, the Latin Americans. I would all, think all, of <laughs> all of them, really. I mean, Vargas Closar, Garcia Marquez, Auto of the Patriarch, definitely. Naipaul, Ben in the River, I think a deeply political novel, much better than, of course, the, the, the more sort of deliberately political novel of his, Gorillas. But Ben the River is, 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 is a marvelous book. And in a way, that's the theme of the books you've described. There are the deliberately political novels. And of course, there are the novels that try and fictionalize politics itself, some of them written by politicians. Yeah, there are the sort of you know, the, the bad political novels, although I have a soft spot for it, the corridors of power, something like that. So C.P. Snow trying to fictionalize. Oh, yeah. And actually, I do have a, I do genuinely have a soft spot for the novels of Gore Vidal about the, the birth of the American Republic. You know, Burr, I think, is a great novel about, but it, you know, it really is about politicians. It's about the business of what happens when they, you know, in, in Hamilton's terms, it, in the room where it happens. But those, in a sense, those are rarer, the, the great novels about politics and politicians. The great political novels tend to be about what Rousseau and Nietzsche would recognize as politics, which is power relations through a whole society seen in the round. And so Absolutely. the great novels are the great political novels, and the great political novels are the great novels. You know, Middlemarch, I think, probably is the great political novel. It's something like, it's look, about... um, I mean, nobody would think of it as a political novel. But Faulkner's uh, Snopes uh, trilogy, uh, The Hamlet, The Town. Again, I mean, I think, um, you know, looking at class relations, social relations, the peasantry, working classes, the aspiring uh, bourgeoisie, the experience in the metropolis, it's really is a panoramic account of. Southern society at a particular particular moment, and of course he's a huge influence on the on the Latin Americans because I think he kind of finds a way to tell the story of class relations. Uh, in that sense, I mean Steinbeck too would be a political novelist, mm. yeah. very much. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Grapes of Wrath is absolutely deep, deeply um, political. Well, no, I was just and then in your list, the, the one person who stands out is Vargas Llosa, who was also a politician, and so in a sense, it's the rarest thing of all. Yeah. Is the is the great political novel written by I mean it's I suppose it's rare in lots of walks of life. The great novel about whatever the thing is written by someone who is that thing. I don't know, the great medical Absolutely. novel written by the doctor, the great Yeah. Um I mean I but, think actually I mean people to talk of Green as a political novelist, but I find actually, you know, uh, uh certainly much less well regarded novelist, Shirley Hazard to be I in my books at least, she's a sort of premier political novelist of the last um, half century. Not a prolific writer, but three novels of us, two novels of us, Transit of Venus and The Great Fire. I think uh, really a comprehensive account of Anglo-America and parts of the white commonwealth too, uh, of its ruling class. I think nobody really, I mean, you know, Doris Lessing, uh, there were some others who did that, but nobody did it as keenly and as accurately uh, diagnose the peculiar psychology of that of that ruling class in those decades, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, I'm also thinking of Christina Stead. She wrote quite a lot of books. I mean, she's famous mostly for *Man Who Loved Children*, but she was also interested in this in this sort of 
looking at the ruling class, looking at the elite at that time and, and, and looking at the way it, it interacts, engages with the rest of the population. Again, not, not sort of polemics in that sense. And um, in a way, and we, we're just about out of time, it takes us back to where we started because what, what makes Rousseau and in a way Nietzsche such great writers about politics is the psychological insight. In the end, you know, it is psychology that, that allows us to make sense of political choices and the greatest writers are the people who, who understand how we think. And so the great political novels are, are as with Nietzsche and Rousseau, are written by the great psychological understanders of, of human choice. Um, and, which, and that is in a sense, one of the things that is missing so much from contemporary technical political philosophy. You know, a lot of the most interesting writing about politics is psychology, not philosophy now. And that's why fiction might be a place to find it. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.